Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Folks podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And on today's episode, Effie and I are continuing our exploration of infidelity, this time from the point of view of the person who cheated. In episode 61, Effie and I took turns telling the stories of how both of our lives were impacted by an affair. After some reflection and a lot of Zoom calls, we realized that those stories, while true, were not reflective of the turmoil, upheaval, and personal excavation that can happen as a result of infidelity. So we went back to the drawing board and decided that each of us should dedicate an episode to our stories so that we could dig into the mess and talk through the lessons learned along the way. In episode 63, Jacqueline shared the story of how the revelation of an affair shook her life like an earthquake. She talked through the various phases of impact and how she managed to get back on stable ground once more. If you haven't listened to that episode, we thoroughly recommend you go back and listen. This week, I'm going to tell my story, one that has been years in the making, and one that began decades before I met my ex-husband. As a reminder, both Effie and my stories are representative of just two people's stories. Not everyone who cheated or was cheated on has experienced what we experienced or felt what we felt. We are sharing to normalize truth-telling, self-examination, leaning into the unexplored, and essentially looking straight at our humanity without looking away through the lens of physical and emotional transgression. As Esther Perel notes in this state of affairs, infidelity brings us face-to-face with the volatile and opposing forces of passion. The lure, the lust, the urgency, the love and its impossibility, the relief, the entrapment, the guilt, the heartbreak, the infulness, the surveillance, the madness of suspicion, the murderous urge to get even, the tragic denouement. Be forewarned, addressing these issues requires a willingness to descend into a labyrinth of irrational forces. Love is messy, infidelity more so but it is also a window like none other into the crevices of the human heart. To do that, it's important to understand the point of view of both parties, what infidelity did to one and what it meant to the other. As we worked on part one of this episode, twice, as Jacqueline masterfully told her story of being cheated on and drew parallels with an earthquake, as we narrated the roller coaster of emotions, devastation and pain of both a natural disaster and infidelity, the same thought kept coming up for me. I had agreed to tell the story as the person who cheated. It wasn't an untold story, but we committed to digging deeper to find authenticity beyond our manicured previous narrations. 
At this point, I had read and reread the script and listened to the audio for what felt like a million times. I had lived through an actual earthquake, volunteered in recovery efforts, as well as set opposite from many clients who were trying to work through metaphorical ones. All this was culminating into a single thought. It was reverberating in my head. I am the earthquake in the story. I am the earthquake. I am the earthquake. For days I was consumed by this thought. I am the earthquake. I felt so much shame. I am the earthquake. I felt so much guilt. I am the earthquake. I felt so much remorse. Then suddenly it dawned on me. An earthquake does not feel anything. An earthquake does not make any choices. It doesn't experience itself. It fulfills its purpose as it shakes the ground and it's done. An earthquake does not change, cannot change. I am in fact a human being. I am blessed that I am cursed. I am flawed by design yet I have free will. If I proclaimed I'm an earthquake, I simply swing between poetic grandiosity and paralyzing self-pity. I lose sight of my humanity, my humility and my honesty. If I hold on to the idea that I'm an earthquake, then I cannot shed light to why I made the choices I made, for myself and others. I cannot rise to the challenge and take responsibility, make amends, learn and educate. Once an affair is revealed, those who are involved often share a similar sentiment. It just happened. Abandoning accountability, minimizing free choice, and applying an overused adage to frame a transgression as a force of nature, a cosmic inevitability that drew parties together without forethought or will. It just happened. While it's true that in the beginning of a connection with someone new, It often involves a biochemically reinforced cocktail of oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and dopamine. This new relationship energy is not the cause for indiscretion. Boundaries are blurred, agreements are broken, choices are made, and secrets are held. And while the parties involved may feel momentarily swept away, the truth is that many decisions led to that moment. In fact, for some, That moment may be years in the making, with unchecked drivers prompting subconscious decisions along the way. If you really unpack an affair, if you dig deep to get to the very root of it all, you may find yourself in the household that you grew up in. You may find that the seeds for an affair were planted way before you and your partner met. You may find it in your relationship with your primary caregivers and in their relationship with each other. Now, not everyone who cheats has trauma, and a tough childhood is not a permission slip to act outside of integrity as an adult. And toxic childhood relationships that continue to go unexamined and unhealed can lead to toxic adult relationships, like uranium buried deep underground and eventually seeping out into the soil and water, poisoning all who ingest it. I grew up in a household with a lot of conflict. Not only conflict in the form of fighting, 
but also in a state of inner conflict. I was well taken care of. There was always food on the table and multiple roofs over my head with views to choose from. I was clean, well-dressed. I was on my way through a good education. I was cultured. I was traveling from a young age. I had all my physical needs taken care of. At the same time, my parents, who are good people, both with their own trauma and little in the form of knowledge, tools, skills or support to deal with them, often turned on each other. While one raged and roared like a tornado tearing through a small town, unpredictable, destructive and scary, the other retreated into themselves as silent as a mountain unshakable, cold, and unresponsive. While one got hypercritical spewing the most needling words that hit the weakest spots in one's psyche with the accuracy of a ninja assassin, the other became more and more distant from this realm, almost ghost-like. While one tenaciously proclaimed deep dissatisfaction, disapproval, and disgust, the other became more and more indifferent. I felt that any kind of calmness was fleeting. There was always a calm before a storm, or a moment of stillness before a star imploded into a black hole. In those stolen moments, I gulped in air and dared to rest my eyes while my body held the tension in the air in its fibres. As an only child, I felt either unseen like an ant would be to warring guards, or under a scorching gaze like an ant under a magnifying glass on a sunny day. Like an ant, I felt powerless. My family had two homes in two parts of the country. There were seemingly socially acceptable reasons why my parents would bounce between the two with me in tow, though not at the same time which meant that either one of them would leave, or I, along with the other, leave one behind. I never knew where I would see them again. Time is very relative to a child, and often confusing. See you soon is mostly meaningless. I spent a lot of my childhood trying to figure out how long soon would take. Besides the ongoing conflict between my parents that often spilt over me as a scornful dismissal, misplaced blame, frustration, or an absent seat at a school recital, I was conflicted inside. I kept thinking to myself, I should be okay. I have all the things I need. But I wasn't. It said that I was an unruly child, not destructive, but defiant. A little too smart, a little too capable, a little too sensitive, a little too much energy, a little too many questions, a little too, well, let's say, a little too much everything. I remember feeling like I couldn't fit into my skin. I wanted to move all the time. I still do. I remember chairs being too still, classes being too slow, expectations being too high. It's also said by too few 
that I was a bright child, that I had an innate sense of adventure fueled by an unwavering curiosity. The rarest of teachers, who didn't mind me listening to class from under my desk, patiently answered my seemingly endless questions and accepted my homework with doodles down the side, would tell my parents I was destined to walk a path less traveled to arrive at greatness. There were adults who spoke of my free spirit with delight and openly wished I'd so unbound from norms. Most of this fell on deaf ears. In an ideal situation, we're brought up by caregivers who keep us safe, offer us a stable base with ample space as we develop into ourselves. They watch with gentle curiosity and guide with generous assumptions as we find our way into the world. Then they let us go, with both an open heart and an open invitation to come back to the home base if and when we need. They provide a stable, solid ground where we can push off and spread our developed, well-mastered wings and fly away. Unfortunately, this is not the experience for many of us. There are so many reasons why it doesn't work out that way, from culture to social structures to economics to the painful reality that some parents and caregivers do not have the tools to physically and emotionally care for themselves, let alone their children. Whatever the reason, when a child is marinated in chaos, secrecy, instability, neglect, or abuse, these behaviors, observations, and feelings soak into their bones and create a blueprint for relationships and love that is hard to escape from. I tried to leave home multiple times. Having plotted an escape several times over the years, and failing to pull off anything beyond packing my life savings of around $2, my favorite plushie, and some socks in a toy suitcase, only to go as far as the bottom of the elevator. At the age of 13, I finally managed to convince my parents to send me to a boarding school. In another country. My wings were too little to fly, and the ground I was trying to push off from felt like swampland but I had the determination of a hummingbird. My little wings weren't going to hold me back. I was to flap as fast and as hard as I could and figure out a flight plan once I took off. I had decided the swampland was not a safe home base. If I was to go back, I'd either be swallowed up by the endless pit of dissatisfaction or get stuck in the sludge of indifference. So there was only one way. And that was to fly far, far away. Little did I know by leaving it behind too early, you don't simply stop needing a home base. Your subconscious yearns for it. The lack of it haunts you in ways you don't notice. It corrupts your decisions, it manipulates your plans, it torments your relationships. It consumes you. I watched even closer, flapped even faster. I clung tight and shoved hard all at the same time. With so much effort exerted towards trying to stay in flight, with no safe ground to land and rest, I didn't get a chance to get to know myself. My sense of self didn't feel rooted in my core, but a collection of distorted reflections as if from a house of mirrors. I was acutely attuned to what others needed, but estranged from what I needed. 
Without a solid internal compass, we start to look to others for direction. We knowingly or unknowingly mold, contort, and minimize ourselves, our needs, our desires, our joy, and even our imagination and vision for what is possible in order to fit more neatly into someone else's definition of success and fulfillment. Without a solid internal compass, we begin to compartmentalize ourselves, deeply hiding the sacred truth of who we are and what we want, and focusing instead on becoming masters of and blending into the environment around us. I'm sure you've heard of empaths. Maybe you are one. Empaths are said to be folks who can feel what others are feeling with their whole being. It's empathy on hyperdrive. It's astral projection into someone else's experience. They are said to be there at the dark depths of despair with those who are suffering and the highest peaks of joy with those who are celebrating. They almost sound like magical creatures born with superpowers. In fact, empaths are not born, they are forged. They are forged by conflict out of sensitive children with erratic worlds. In an effort to survive, with no other power at their disposal, they turn all their attention to those who are supposed to take care of them with the gaze of a hawk. They become students of human reactions as if their lives depended on it. It kind of does. They master reading the slightest twitch of a muscle and detecting the sharpness of an inhale with such expertise, it makes a seasoned spy envious. They are watching to make sure they can get out of the way if a tornado suddenly touches down in their vicinity or catch a glimpse of acknowledgement from an otherwise still mountain. It becomes second nature before they even know it. And that's how I was forged. So let's set the scene. If you are aching for a safe, solid, calm valley to rest, to replace the sinking swampland that is intent on drowning you, what would you do? If out of survival, you so finely attuned your ability to read people, anticipate their thoughts and needs to the point of almost living in their skin, What kind of person would you choose to be with? If you somehow managed to safely land and create the world that you dreamt of, with the person who you believed would be the one to anchor it, what would you do to protect it? I met David in the summer before my last year of university. He had just graduated as a rocket engineer with a full scholarship. Yes, he was literally a rocket scientist. We met through a mutual friend at the centre where I worked that summer as a windsurfing instructor. He was handsome and fit. He made me smile. We were both into windsurfing. More importantly, he was stable, predictable, even-tempered and uncomplicated. He was open-hearted, kind, trusting and dependable. He called when he said he would, he remembered my birthday and opened doors. He wanted a simple life. I wanted a simple life, didn't I? David and I dated while I was finishing school and got married pretty soon after graduation. I loved him, 
as much for who he was as for how I felt he wouldn't change. The problem was, I wasn't honest with him. I didn't tell him how desperately I needed to feel safe. I didn't give him a chance to choose his own adventure. Empaths make great partners. They can sense what you desire, what you need, what makes you uncomfortable. They can cast a spell that can make the home that you dreamt of even better than you imagined it. I did that for us. The company who paid for his schooling hired him upon graduation as promised. My last internship offered me a job and I took it without much thought. We bought a house near his work. I decorated. I hosted dinner parties. I showed up at work events well-dressed with a broad smile and jokes. I held my tongue with his disapproving, difficult parents. Most of the time. We went on simple vacations, had simple sex, ate simple food. It was the safe home base I craved. Well, it was the safe home base I craved as a child. The home base you're supposed to trust and fly away from to explore the world and find yourself. The safe home base where you are held by caregivers, not lovers or partners. When I tell the story of my serial infidelity, I talk about how I cheated when I'm the happiest and most settled in a relationship. I talk about how I was not missing anything. I just got curious. It sounds so innocent, so naive, so benign. And voila, non-monogamy was the answer, I conclude. So neat, so convenient. In truth, it's so much more complicated and messier and at times darker than that. The truth is that I had buried the unfinished, unattended self-portrait of who I was in a vault with thick walls made of shame deep inside myself. It was more of a Picasso than a Rembrandt. I had heard enough times that it was substandard, imprecise, ugly and unacceptable from a raging parent soaking in their own despair, unable to stop oozing criticisms from their open wound. From the overworked teachers who had to choose control over compassion. From a society that needed neatly shaped people to function. I had internalized that no one would want to see it, know it, love it, so I hid it. With who I was safely locked away, alienated from my desires, my curiosity frozen out, I'd show up in relationships bending and contorting and manipulating to create these snow globes of lives that felt as perfect as they were fragile. They were what I needed so I could rest and catch my breath, which was too precious to be meddled with. I needed them to stay perfect and calm, so I showed people what they wanted to see and I became what they needed me to be. Safety first, play never. In the beginning, I myself would buy into the false reality I created. I would enjoy the snow globe, imagining that I could live in it forever. I would settle into it, get a taste for the sanctuary I concocted. And in those moments, I really didn't want anything more. 
My life with David was such a sanctuary. It was quite wonderful, and it was to be preserved at all cost, and the cost was high. I'd pay in heartache and longing for the whole of me. I craved an outlet for curiosity, autonomy, spontaneity, and play. I didn't want to risk damaging the safety and stability at home by introducing passion. I didn't realize anything else was an option. Exploring options would have taken experimentation, and I didn't have the courage to risk the safety I had with David that felt so vital. I couldn't afford what felt like an inevitable rejection. At the time, I didn't know if the person I feel safe with could also be the person I could explore with. I didn't know that kind of fluidity could exist. I wasn't honest with him. I didn't tell him how desperately I needed to explore, to play, to unlock and reveal myself. I didn't give him the chance to choose his own adventure. I realize now that I chose people in that way, safety or adventure. I didn't allow them to be more than one-dimensional. I crafted and controlled relationships rather than collaborated on them. Humans are the most adaptable creatures on this planet. They say it's because of our higher intelligence, though in reality, it may be because of our ability to wield our imagination. The way that we can build tribes, communities, societies, and countries that function around laws and currencies, roles and prejudices, all of which are products of our imagination. The way that we can expand and contract our emotional capacity to feel everything and then nothing in a heartbeat. The way that we can organize our inner worlds to hide away from discomfort of our dissonance. And the way that we're able to fathom in our minds, bend our realities, sculpt our belief systems, and then navigate around them with precision reasoning. We create a world in our minds and manifest that into the world we live in. We hold contradictory truths and compartmentalize beliefs, values, and behaviors to suit our needs. That is what makes us superior. A lioness kills with no remorse. We can kill despite remorse. And that truth is what makes transgressions all the more painful. We, in fact, are not earthquakes without feeling. We are not animals without reason or imagination, and we are also simply not products of our childhood, condemned to repeat the patterns role modeled to us by our caregivers. We have motives. We have choice. We have accountability. When I decided to pursue connections outside my existing relationships, I knew what I was doing. I never pretended as if one thing led to another. I was chasing an experience that was reductive in nature and overwhelming in intensity. I was looking for casual intimacy, ungrounded desire, fleeting passion, and transient lust. I wanted to touch my wholeness and step through my wildness and then leave it all behind. I chose people who were either high-risk takers bordering on a responsible or impressionable enablers who were enchanted by my wild suggestions. I wasn't honest with them. 
I didn't tell them how desperately I needed to let loose. I didn't give them the chance to choose their own adventure. Two years into my marriage, I took time off to go back to the windsurfing center I worked that summer. Beach life is enticing. As I kicked off my shoes and stepped onto the warm sand, I pulled the curtain across my life back at home. As I felt the breeze across my skin, I sunk into my body and my responsibilities became a distant whisper. As I squinted my eyes to adjust for the blazing sun, any sense of commitment and duty melted away. Now, I just needed a protagonist. Nick was your typical seasonal beach bum. Blonde salty locks, a deep tan that only happens when you work in the sun, board shorts slung low, carefree. We connected over every sailor's favourite topic, the weather. Boring for many, directly correlated to fun for the few that derive their thrills from the elements. As a part of the seasonal work lifestyle, be it a ski season or a surf season, a string of fleeting connections are available to you. A new group of guests arrive on weekly basis and stay for a week or two and then go back home. They often like the extra attention from one of the instructors and you get to experience someone new without any commitments. The expectations are very clear and it's an acceptable perk of the lifestyle. Nick and I danced a dance over a few days and one evening, after whatever the entertainment team had planned for the day, we headed back to the staff quarters. We both knew where this would end. For him, it was a no-brainer. For me, it was an elaborate mental gymnastics of Olympic standards. As we chatted, he would ask me questions about my life, and I'd answer. Not only verbally omitting, but mentally skipping the major headlines. I had decided that he didn't want to hear about my married life of tranquility, so we talked about my backpacking tales and underground raves. People who did this kind of work often cross paths. At some point, we worked out that we had friends in common that tied him to David. Close friends. Too close. I didn't skip a beat. In my hubris, not only had I reasoned omission is technically not lying, I'd figured I'd be able to spin a web elaborate enough to keep the information from flowing and my emotions from boiling over. Secrets, deception, and manipulation were essential tools for my survival. Frankly, it was hard to tell if I was wielding them with a Machiavellian intent or a Pollyanna-ish abandon. I really wasn't thinking about anything else other than myself. I was refusing to see beyond the moment. I was refusing to acknowledge the gravity of my actions. I was refusing to be an adult. I wanted the experience. I wanted to play a part. Our sexual expression is a part of our self-expression. And mine had been stifled and trapped in a prison of my own making. I was yearning to be fully and wholly self-expressed. I wanted to get enwrapped in the erotic with no questions. I wanted to get lost in somebody else's body and not be able to tell where I end and they began. I wanted to breathe air thick with lust. I wanted to feel alive. 
I was selfish, self-centered, and self-serving. I skillfully compartmentalized my actuality to dull the pain and lull the anxiety. I ducked and dived in my head, convincing myself the insignificance of my decisions. I cast a spell, and I got what I wanted. The night I spent with Nick wasn't sentimentally special. It wasn't meant to be, but honestly, it felt essential. It felt like it relieved the pressure that had been painfully crystallizing my spirit. I got to reunite with the abandoned parts of myself, short-lived though it may be. It was escapism as its finest. I woke up lighter and rejuvenated. I liked Nick. We were sweet and kind to one another before we parted ways. He was the perfect stranger. By the time I had finished my breakfast the next morning, I had organized the memory, the thoughts and feelings in neat compartments in my mind. I had rolled back the wild and adjusted back to normal. When I got home, I could barely recall the event. I was happy to see David. I had missed our home. I felt soothed. I felt like I could breathe and everything was enough once again. At least for a while. Affairs are often not about sex, but instead about having an experience. Feeling something that you're craving. Something not found in your current relationship. Intensity. Desire. Connection. Curiosity. Risk. Freedom. Aliveness. Knownness. Infidelity could be a pathway into unexplored or unacknowledged parts of yourself, reconnecting lost or abandoned pieces, discovering new versions of yourself, and creating a world free from the responsibility of day-to-day where your needs and desires take center stage. It is indeed a selfish act, done at great risk for your delight and satisfaction. And for those who have taken on the role of the good partner, the good homemaker, the good parent, for those who have focused on meeting and exceeding expectations, for those who have prioritized the people in their lives over themselves and created snow globes for homes. This act of rebellious selfishness is a way of dipping a toe into another reality, one free from the constraints of their chosen life. It is both an act of bravery and cowardice of finding the missing key to important parts of themselves and their desires, and of hiding that key from the people they love. And for most, there is a moment when those two parts of themselves collide, where the actions emboldened by their bravery and the secrets and lies spun by their cowardice come to a head. Either through confession or through discovery, there is a point for many when they must account for these two selves. It didn't take long for the psychic walls to start seeping the truth into my consciousness. With that came the two familiar horsemen of gloom. Guilt, shame, remorse, and terror. I had done something incredibly hurtful to someone I cared about, and immensely damaging to a life that was grounding me. It couldn't be undone, and it was only a matter of time the dots connected and David found out. 
my first instinct was to pretend none of it was real. I wished none of it was real. After that, I dreamt up excuses and warped versions of the truth that somehow would get me and everyone through this. I wanted to get ahead of it, control it, manage it, direct it, make it disappear. By the time I was ready to confess, David knew something was up. The grape wine had been stirring. His friends were asking questions and so was he. Nothing direct or concrete, but he was showing more interest in my time over the summer. One evening, I just told him. I told him what happened in the most factual way I could, but most definitely played it down. I was trying to convince myself and him that it wasn't a big deal and that it meant nothing. I apologized, I explained, I reasoned, I negotiated. As the story unfolded, he seemed more disturbed by the web of deceit and my lack of integrity than anything else. David was as pragmatic as humanly possible, which was in line with his overall personality, so I wasn't surprised. I was willing and ready to share everything, but he didn't get tangled up in the story. Who, what, when, how often were of no interest to him. He firmly kept his focus on me and the decisions I made to break the relationship agreements we made with each other. He was angry, but composed. He was hurt, but didn't lash out. He was affected, but practical. The spell had broken, and it was clear, based on what I did, there was no going back. We were young, didn't have kids. I didn't fight it. I couldn't see beyond the wreckage. Once the dust settled, we began to untangle our lives. There was no other options on the table. My marriage eventually ended in divorce. I was devastated and then numb. I was terrified and then placid. I was defiant and then defeated. I was disgusted with myself and then livid with the world. I couldn't be still. So I did what I knew best. I took flight. Unfortunately, a version of the story was repeated in my subsequent relationships. I would, with each variation, get more and more twisted up inside. And I felt like split into a million pieces. I was losing sight of anything that felt true. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I had no qualms about it most of the time. And then I would have these detached periods where I could justify the omissions, the half-truths, the pretense only to deal with the fallouts over and over again. I'd periodically punish myself with extended spells of singledom, convinced by my toxicity, and torture myself with work. I leaned hard on my career, and it was paying off. I was holding positions way above my age group and experience, given assignments that would have me travel the world and make enough money to justify my solo lifestyle to any concerned party. It was flight and business class. During that time, my mental health had deteriorated and I had settled into a high-functioning depression, though I didn't have a name for it. I was struggling physically as a result, so I went to see my doctor with a list of issues from aches and pains to concentration and energy issues. 
She referred me to a psychiatrist who did therapy. I was desperately lost and at a record low. I was mentally and emotionally exhausted. The path that leads to infidelity is as layered and complex as the pathway out. Each thread spun into the web of untruths and double lives needs to be pulled apart and untangled to reveal the inner narrative that led to the act of transgression. There's no black and white answer to the question of why someone cheats. There's no clear villains and victims. By trying to wrap the experience and consequence of infidelity into neat little box of good and bad, we erase all of the emotions, the desire, and the experience that played into the decision to cheat. We rob those involved of the possibility of learning from the experience and asking the deeper questions that may reveal opportunities for healing. I walked into Dr. M's office in a haze. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do or how it was supposed to work. I sat down in a huge pale blue chair that seemed to cocoon me. And there began a relationship I had never experienced before. A relationship designed for healing with a willing and trained adult. That pale blue chair soon became a tiny patch where I could land and catch my breath and piece together a lifetime. I could name feelings, face realities, fall apart and reassemble. Around this time, I had also discovered non-monogamy while I was looking for... something. I had almost literally stumbled into the community in New York City. It was a huge revelation. I felt like all my problems could be solved with a simple shift. It's not cheating if it's sanctioned, right? In that one glorious moment, a life of turmoil dissipated. I dove right in. I wanted not only live like this, but understand it. Was this some New York way of living? Why hadn't I come across this before? How do these people tick? It felt so right. While my curious mind gorged itself on this new way of relating, my soul remained in turmoil. The way we relate to people is ingrained deep inside our operating system. It's shaped by the earliest of our experiences and coping strategies. Shakespeare asks through Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by another name would smell as sweet, she reasons. I assure you, that which we call a poorly adjusted coping mechanism by another name would smell as wretched. Just because it wasn't called cheating anymore, it didn't mean my behavior was now okay. I was still who I was with all the subconscious demons that got me there. Non-monogamy, as it turns out, was not a panacea. Nothing had dissipated. It was just an illusion held by a simple reorganization of other people's values. It was no different than the reorganizing and compartmentalizing that I was accustomed to to justify my actions. I still felt a fear of enmeshment and a desire to control. I would swing between utter selflessness and cold deceptions. I would share everything and then shut people out. Even when I was in the most open relationships with the most open people, 
I still didn't tell my partners about all the dates I went on. I still hid things and expressed my feelings. I would disappear for days. A partner, lovingly in half jest, labelled me flight risk. However, for the first time, I had a mirror that wasn't as distorted. I had a place that started to feel like a safe and solid ground and an ear that was proving to be non-judgmental and kind. For the first time, I was in a relationship that didn't need me to show up in any other way than I am, with someone who didn't need me to take care of them. Week in, week out, I sunk into the pale blue chair and unpacked my lives, my narratives and my belief systems. I understood, I felt, I spoke, I cried. I began a slow and arduous path to a robust sense of self reconnecting with what truly gave me joy, a sense of purpose and a peace of mind. I have by no means reached my destination, but I walk the path with more ease one step at a time. I still have pretty rough days, but I find my way back to myself eventually. Having read all the books and listened to all the classes and attended all the seminars, I'm full of knowledge. It's wisdom I gained from my lived experience that allows me to sit with my clients and hear them and feel them. Knowledge doesn't heal, empathy does. Information doesn't guide, experience does. Humans are the most adaptable creatures on the planet, limited only by our imaginations. And when those imaginations are limited, When possibilities shrink down to didactic constructs and parts of ourselves are hidden away because they are provided no room to breathe in the world around us, we too shrink away. For many, queerness, non-monogamy, kink, and other ways of expressing fullness outside of heteronormative prescription can feel like an invitation to breathe and stretch and grow and experience wholeness. It can feel like an invitation to invent a new set of norms, one that is not tethered by a short string to constructs and identities that were designed for simplicity and compliance. Though cheating is a selfish and risky path towards self-exploration, it may shine a light on the areas of your life that you may be lacking, to parts of yourself that you have hidden away, to desires that are maps to your fullness, to keys that can unlock both trauma and healing. It may be an indicator of what your life could look like in its fullness with transparency, work, imagination, and most importantly, courage. An affair is not about a relationship with someone else. It's about one's relationship with integrity. Integrity takes courage. The courage to show all of ourselves to stick with our values, and not take the easy path. My relationships look very different now. I practice attunement with myself. I can only be known fully if I know myself. I name how I feel and know it will probably change. I cultivate a myriad of relationships and show up in them with the courage and humility to be who I am fully. 
If I start to pull away, hide things, or notice dissonance, I get grounded and prepare to sit through potentially uncomfortable conversations. I work on tolerating the discomfort of setting boundaries. I own my desires, share them with potential partners, and don't allow shame to dictate how I get to be fully self-expressed. I don't create relationships, but collaborate on them with willing parties with whom I choose to be transparent. I approach relationships with curiosity rather than caution. I pursue my passions and purpose above all, not selfishly, but with self-compassion. My relationships don't define me, but I define them through integrity. I say what I'm going to do and do what I said I'd do. I choose polyamory as my preferred relationship structure to remind myself the availability of love without any constraints or conditions. First of all, for myself. We have dug deep and poured ourselves into these episodes. If they've moved you, resonated with you, or helped you in any way, we ask that you share these episodes in this podcast with someone else. You have the power to help us change the noise by liking, following, and sharing this podcast with as many people as possible. We'd love to hear your stories of depths and heights. You can leave us an anonymous message at 201-870-0063 or email us a voice memo or an email at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. We're going to continue the conversation on Patreon with some bonus content and questions for our Patreon members. You can join Patreon and become a supporter of the Curious Fox community to get access to free events, podcast extras, and more. Stay connected with us and join in on the conversation via Instagram or Facebook at We Are Curious Foxes. Deep, lasting, and unwavering love and gratitude for my podcast host, collaborator, and significant friend, Effie Blue, for sharing her story with such honesty, vulnerability, depth, and poetry. In this episode, Effie crafted some of the most truest and most gorgeous lines that I've ever heard. You continue to inspire me to be a better writer, educator, and human being. Oh, hearts, hearts, hearts. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who enables us to both feel safe and feel as if we can fly. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work. And we are grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind. And we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.